Well, we come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 49. And I've entitled my discourse to you, The Nature of the Resurrected Body. Or I should say, The Nature of the Resurrection Body. How's that? That's better yet. This is undoubtedly one of the most magnificent, one of the most exhilarating passages in all of Scripture. It is one that, frankly, just leaves you speechless. One that sends your imagination into orbit at at light speed. Because here the Spirit of God, speaking through his inspired apostle, gives us a glimpse of what John meant when he said in 1 John 3, 2, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Folks, let that sink in. We shall be like him. Someone has said that imitation is the highest form of praise, and certainly I believe that to be true, and that is the destiny of the redeemed, is it not? To be like Christ, absolutely mind-boggling. You know, if you truly belong to Christ, think about what happens in your life. Sometime over the course of your life, by God's grace, the Spirit of God brings conviction to your heart. He gives you the gift of faith, causes you to be born again, and suddenly you receive a new nature. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4.24, we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And like we read in Romans 8.29, we are destined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And then as we think about our life, over the course of our life in fulfillment of God's elective love upon those he has chosen before the foundation of the world... And through the unassailable agency of his divine providence, he gradually conforms us into the likeness of his son. That's what's happening right now. And he is right now transforming us into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory, as we read in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Until finally, one day, with unveiled faces, we will be able to reflect the Lord's glory. Beloved, only then will we be able to see him just as he is, because only then will we finally and forever have a resurrected body. In verse 49 of the text we're going to study here, we, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says, just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And in Philippians 3.21, we read that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And it is the nature of this resurrection body that we are going to examine today. Now, before we look at the text, I know, because I've been intimately involved with a number of you this past week, I know that a number of you are struggling in some significant ways in your life. Some very difficult things you're going through. Very difficult season. And my heart aches with you. 
like we were singing a little bit ago, sorrows like sea billows roll sometimes, don't they? Sometimes life can be very difficult. But we also know that this is exactly where God wants you for his eternal purposes. And think about it, those without Christ only have three ways of coping with great difficulties. They only really have three choices when life becomes unbearable. One is to just rearrange circumstances to try to make things better. Sometimes there's only so much you can do to make that happen. The second thing they can do is medicate, and that's what most people do. Over 70,000 people die every year of drug overdoses in our country. You know, there's not enough whiskey in all the world to ease the pain at times, right? Then the final choice is suicide. But for those of us who are united to Christ, it's a totally different story. We have a totally different way of coping with things because of the spirit that dwells within us. Coping with things in a way that provides for us a peace that surpasses all understanding according to Philippians 3. And if we were to look at that text, it's because we know that the Lord is near, and therefore, by the power of the Spirit, our minds dwell upon whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute, whatever is excellent and whatever is worthy of praise, right? And you dear hurting saints this morning, May I just say to you that there is nothing more worthy of praise than finally being made like Christ. To finally be able to stand in his presence in a glorified body and see him as he is. Absolutely inconceivable. To see him as he is in the fullness of his Trinitarian glory. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, or it could be translated, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. He goes on to say, For you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. And then he says this, When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And my friends, it is the glorious nature of our resurrected body that he would have us focus on this morning. And I hope this will be an encouragement to each of you, especially those that are struggling. Here we are going to be transported from earthly sorrows into the realm of heavenly splendor. And I trust that this will be a time of refreshment and encouragement and, frankly, exhilarating joy as we all contemplate what awaits us. It's time to kind of lift your heads from what we're looking at with all the difficulties of life and look up and say, that's what awaits me by God's grace and for his glory. Now, let me remind you again of the context. Paul has proven to the Corinthians that... The certain promise of a bodily resurrection is certain. 
because there were those that were denying that false teachers had deceived the people into believing some of the myths of Greek philosophical dualism, that matter is bad, but spiritual is good. So anything physical is bad and you need to escape that. And so for them, the thought of a bodily resurrection was absolutely absurd. And I might also add that there were others among the Jews who mistakenly believed that there might be a resurrected body, but it would simply be kind of a new version of of the present body that we have. And and even some of them bought into what we read about in some of the Jewish uh, apocalyptic literature that essentially taught that the resurrected body would be kind of a, a, a grotesque, Organism composed of reassembled particles of, of a rotting corpse. Uh, the, kind of the zombie type, uh, walking dead mentality, which by the way is, is a ghoulish fascination that our culture has. A ghoulish fascination of something that God abhors. And if you're a Christian, you do not need to be exalting Satan by watching that type of filth. I mean, men apart from God are spiritual zombies, right? They are the walking dead, and they're so dead they don't even know it. But some of the Jewish people believe that as well, and I, I want to read a, a little sample of some of the literature of that day. In, in uh, Second Barak 49, um, I don't usually quote uh, this type of literature, but you need to know what, what they would have been aware of. Um, this is from the Apocalypse of Barak, uh, and it was written somewhere around AD 75, but it ex- gives a, a, you an idea of what they thought. It says this, in what shape will those live who live in thy day? Re- referring to this resurrected day. He answered and said to me, the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead, which it now receives in order to preserve them. Then it says this, it shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so it will restore them. Yuck. Who would want that? So this belief that a a resurrection might possibly be nothing more than a revitalization of, of a dead body or the resuscitation of a corpse helped fuel the denial that was going on in the church. And again, as I say, Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it's a lie. And he provides all kinds of different lies. You pick your poison. And that's what was going on. So now in verses 35 through 49, Paul anticipates uh, their next objection by asking their objection for them and then answering it. Notice verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? I mean, they're thinking like a lot of people do. I mean, material bodies are going to decompose. Some bodies are going to be burned. They're going to be eaten by wild beasts. They're going to be drowned in the seas. How can that body be raised from the dead? How is that possible? People today use that same kind of reasoning. And the next question, and with what kind of body do they come? You know, some zombie body? All this is inconceivable. How can we be expected to believe such foolishness. And so these were the superstitions and the objections that the Apostle Paul had to deal with in the church. And with this in mind, he responds, and this is our text this morning, beginning in verse 36. You fool. 
That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a living, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So as we look at this text, I'd like to do so, do so under three categories that I hope will be helpful to you. First of all, Paul is going to address these, these foolish assumptions of the resurrection deniers under three lines of reasoning. Number one, he will explain the reality of the resurrection from the analogy of the seed. And then secondly, the uniqueness of the resurrection from the created universe. And finally, the dissimilarity of the resurrection body from the earthly body. These are just absolutely astounding truths that I trust will animate your heart as we celebrate all that Christ has done. Now, I'm curious. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have any of you seen the Russian face aging app that uses artificial intelligence to create um, a, a rendering of what you might look like uh, in a few decades. I've seen people do this and they put it on Facebook. I don't know why you would want to do that. But but anyway, it, it, it's really kind of crazy. And well, folks, this is kind of the real version of that app, only this is really what we're going to look like um, if, you, if we're united to Christ in saving faith. So let's look at the text in that, in that light. Again, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And Paul, being the seeker-sensitive fellow that he is, he answers and he says, you fool. Evangelical pragmatism had not been invented in that day. I'm sure he would have said it very differently had it been. Not really. Of course, fool was a derisive term that was used to describe someone that lacks good judgment. And we use it in that way today. So he begins first by reasoning from the basis of the reality of the resurrection body from the analogy or the reality of it from the analogy of the seed. Notice verse 36. That which you sow does not come to life 
unless it dies. You fool, don't you know that? That's what he's saying. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Now, this is really fascinating when you think about it. Uh, Our bodies are like dormant seeds awaiting germination. We all know this, that a seed goes into the ground and it undergoes a process of, of, of disorganization and disillusion and decomposition. And, and when you plant a seed in the ground, its material parts are, are greatly altered. It's a magnificent thing when you think about it. And as a result of that disorganization, a magnificent reorganization occurs so that that seed that entered the ground is transformed into something that is radically different from its original form. And when the embryo inside that that, frankly, ugly little seed uh, begins to germinate and enlarge. Something far more glorious begins to come forth from the ground. So Paul's point here is that the old must cease to exist in its original form before it can come to life in its final form. And so the body here is like the seed. It must undergo that same process. Jesus used the same analogy in describing his own death in John 12, 24. There he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And we know that his death provided for us the glorious fruit of saving grace. And even as one kernel of corn can be put into the ground to produce a rich harvest of many kernels of corn, so too the death of the Son of God produced a rich harvest of countless souls. Now back to Paul's point. Like the seed, our body must die in its original form in order to give life to a more glorious form. And in verse 38, he says, but God gives it a body just as he wished. God gives, present tense. He is the one who oversees this entire process. Nothing is left to chance. We do none of this according to our own volition, any more than seeds germinate on the basis of their own choice. They just don't decide whether or not they will or won't. It's ultimately in God's control. Nor does any of this happen by chance. God, but God gives. And he says, and God gives to each of the seeds a body of its own. So here we see that God is the the decisive force uh, that has predetermined the genetic makeup of the seed. He has created everything according to its own kind, as we read in Genesis 1. All plants and animals um, reproduce in such a way as to maintain their own unique characteristics according to their genetic blueprint. Nothing reproduces across Species lines. This is one of the great refutations of evolutionary theory. There is no scientific proof that one form of life can change into another. The biological codes are binding and they are unique. And so this means that, if I can put it this way, discontinuity in the dying seed does not prevent the continuity of its genetic makeup. Every seed produces life after its own kind. An acorn 
doesn't produce a rose. It produces an oak. So too, the acorn of a, of a redeemed corpse produces the oak of that resurrected glorified body. So while our resurrected body will, will, will change, it will be changed in outward form. It will not change in inward identity. In other words, there will be continuity. We will still be ourselves. Now, for example, the resurrected glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ was still recognizable as Jesus. There was continuity with his original identity. The disciples, his friends, they recognized him. And we will recognize each other in glory. We'll just be a whole lot better looking than we are now. I heard a few amens right back there. It was kind of quiet, but it's there. Now, critics, critics are always going to scoff, and this is what Paul is dealing with, and say, well, how could God possibly find all of the human elements of a body that has disintegrated and, and been dispersed o- over thousands of years? I mean, if there's no seed, there can be no germination. And I've had people ask me this before, especially in light of cremation. They're thinking, my goodness, the ashes are scattered over the ocean or over a, a lake or a mountainside or whatever. And how does God find enough body parts to resurrect? Well, first of all, may I say the Spirit of God doesn't answer that. And for good reason, we wouldn't be able to understand it if he were to tell us. But we can rest assured that our omniscient creator kept a copy of the original original genetic code in his DNA registry, right? And in his op- omnipotence, he can do anything that he wants. Folks, don't ask questions that betray an attitude of, of, of a small God. I mean, God is, is more immense than we can imagine. And the glory of his imminence is, is just unfathomable. In other words, his, his ability to, to permanently pervade and sustain all that is cre- he has created. I'm reminded of Psalm 139, verse 13. The psalmist says, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Speaking of the mother's womb, he goes on to say, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them, and on and on it goes. Now, folks, I ask you, do you really think there could be a situation in which the principle of life that he created for you might be forever lost? Beloved, it may well be that our genetic code that determines our organic life resides in the soul that lives forever. I mean, think about it. Absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. At death, the soul vacates the body and is instantly transported into glory. But even in that state, not yet having a glorified body, each departed saint 
is recognizable. It's not like there's some ethereal, immaterial ghost floating around in the air. Remember Moses and Elijah at the trans at the uh, uh, transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were recognizable, yet they don't have a glorified body yet. So there's no need to worry that your family might cremate you and the Lord wouldn't have enough parts to get you a resurrected body. I've literally had people think that. Moreover, think about this. Are we not united to Christ? Are we not as believers in Christ? Of course we are. And he, is he not the first fruits of a resurrection harvest? Of course, we've already studied that. Paul has made that clear. In other words, our resurrected body is so certain that it, 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 it already exists. I love what Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 3. He says, his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you unless you've lost all your body parts. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, folks, let this sink in. Glorification involves both body and soul. And we are united to Christ in every act of his accomplishment in redemption. You must remember this. I mean, think about this. In regeneration, if we study the scriptures, we see that we, we are suddenly made alive together with Christ that we are created in Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us that we have died with Christ, that our old self has been crucified with him, that we've been buried with him, that we've been raised from the dead with him, and even seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in other words, our union with Christ encompasses the entire spectrum of salvation. Every aspect of it, from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future. And there is nothing that can thwart his eternal purposes. So do you really think something might happen to your physical body that might prevent him from finding enough particles of your body to have enough seed to resurrect some of the members of his bridal church for whom he died. You see how silly it begins to, to, to look when you think of it theologically. He purchased us with his very blood. He's not going to lose us. By the way, I know some are going to ask, so let me deal with it very briefly. What do you think about cremation? It was a Roman custom uh, the early Jew, the Jews and the early Christians uh, believed in interment or burial. And bottom line, it's a preference. Scripture doesn't say one way or the other. The Old Testament Jews, we know, rejected cremation because fire symbolized judgment and cremation resembled the, the forbidden uh, pagan practice of human sacrifice. And many believers are opposed to cre- cremation uh, because... You know, our bodies are made in the image of, of, of our creator and we should treat it with dignity 
even as Jesus' body was, was, cre- was treated with great dignity in his death. And since we care for our body and life, we need to care for the body and death. And having it interred in the ground in a dig- dignified posture of sleep is, is the way that we really need to go. Moreover, some will say that there's no indication that this, in Scripture that the Holy Spirit uh, vacates his residence in our bodies at death. And and um, believers who are deceased are still, uh, they, they sleep in Jesus, they remain forever united to him, and so on and so forth. However, on the other side of that, in ways that we cannot comprehend, the, the body and the soul are forever united in Christ, as I rehearsed a few minutes ago. So bottom line, the Bible doesn't say, and you know, it really doesn't matter whether you burn the body or put it in a, in a casket, it's all going to turn to dust one way or the other. And so it's, it's, it's really up to you. Now, I know some of you are going to say, which do you prefer? Well, I prefer a burial, but that doesn't mean I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So now that we've dealt with that, you don't have to ask that, all right? Now you know. So Paul moves from arguing from the basis of the analogy of the seed to, secondly, the uniqueness of the resurrection from the created universe. And again, now, while, while there will be continuity in our resurrected bodies, there, there will not be uniformity. I mean, we're not going to co- all come out as clones. There's going to be infinite variety, and that's what he talks about here in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men. And we all know that. Every single one of us are human beings, but we all look different. I was reading that there's an estimated 7.7 million species of animals on the earth, and that, notice he uses this analogy here. He says, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish, and so forth. Right now, even with many animals that have died and that are extinct, there are 7.7 million species, and not, not one looks alike. I mean, they're all different. And even within species, there's none that are identical. You realize even identical twins are not identical. It's mind-numbing when you think of the variety of God's created order. And so Paul's point is, through creation, God has already proven his ability to maintain uniqueness. I mean, he specializes in continuity, but not at the expense of infinite variety, which will be manifested in our resurrection bodies that he gives to all that are in Christ. So why would anyone think that God is incapable of recreating and resurrecting human bodies that will manifest infinite variety? He then expands his argument by contrasting the variety of glory that can be seen in the realm of astronomy. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. We know that the, the ontological makeup of, of the stars and the planets are all different. And, the, and, and all of that is radically different from our earthly bodies. Just think of what God has done. Verse 41, he goes on to say, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars and stars... For star differs from star in glory. So, again, does God have the power of resurrection? Of course he does. Then the stars we know generate their own light, 
and the planets and moon reflect the light of, of, of their suns in an infinite variety of ways to form all of the beautiful colors. And yet God created them all. He maintains them all. He causes them all to stay within their orbital, orbital boundaries. So for him to resurrect a body is no big deal. Moreover, even as the celestial bodies of the universe are vastly different in nature and splendor than the earthly bodies we inhabit, so too he is going to recreate and give us a resurrected body that is likewise infinitely different in nature and splendor than these current bodies. That's his point. So, he speaks of the reality of the resurrection body from the analogy of the seed and the uniqueness of it from the created universe. And then thirdly, the dissimilarity of the resurrection body from the earth, earthly body, beginning in verse 42. And here Paul underscores, frankly, with much more specificity, if I can use that term, the differences between our glorified body and our earthly body. In 42, there in the middle, he says, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Now, folks, here's where it gets really exciting. I mean, we know that decomposition or decay is the natural, inevitable process of the earthly body. It is subject to disease. It is subject to death. Our bodies are made up of an estimated 30 trillion cells. And there are 200 different kinds of cells in our bodies. I was reading that 300 million cells die every minute in our bodies. I don't know how they count all of this, but we'll take them at their word. And this requires the body to make new cells. I was reading that the average body makes about two to three million red blood cells every second. There was two to three million new cells. That's just blood cells, red blood cells. Well, one day, folks, what we read here is none of that's going to be necessary. No more, no, nothing else is going to die. For, we read that early in Romans 8.21, when as a result of Christ's coming and the resurrection, he says, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul goes on to say that our body is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. So how foolish to think that our resurrected body will be nothing more than a revitalization of what we currently have. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. The term dishonor speaks of, of, uh, of shame. It speaks of uh, just a state of disgrace. Now think about it. Even though we were created in perfection, prior to the fall, with a perfect ability to give God glory in all that we thought and did, sin ruined all of that. And now, more often than not, we dishonor God with our bodies. We fail to present our bodies as a a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God and so forth, but not so in our resurrected body. Moreover, there's nothing 
more dishonorable about the body than smelling the putrefaction of it, right? The horrible stench of that alone speaks of disgrace. It's for this reason that the a corpse was considered unclean in the Mosaic law. In Numbers 19, verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. But folks, the point here is the resurrected, the resurrection body will not stay as it was in interment. It will be raised a glorified body. Now, I know some will ask, as I have, well, how old do you think we'll be, you know, in our resurrected bodies? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but I think it's safe to assume that our resurrected bodies will have all of the marks of, of, of youthful loveliness and strength and, and vigor, a perfect manifestation of the intended beauty of, of maleness and, and of femaleness, um, able to, so that we're able to render praise to our Creator. We'll probably all be in some youthful-looking state. That's what we would assume from Scripture. And I might add as well that there will be no hint of the blasphemous LGBTQ perversions in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, and verses 9 through 10 makes that clear as, revel- as well as Revelation 22 and 14 and so forth. So we're probably all going to look like beautiful young men and women. I tell my Russian friends that we're all going to speak English, too, and that really gets a rise out of them. In chapter four, or in verse 43, it says, it is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. And I mean, think about that. Boy, we all know what this is like. Our, our current bodies are very limited in, in physical strength and stamina. We lack vigor. We, we are a fragile people. We are very vulnerable to all manner of disease and injury. I mean, you can be a massive uh, football player, and one microscopic little organism can destroy you within a day. And when the body dies, the lifeless corpse is really a, a symbol of that weakness, is it not? But it will be raised in power. In other words, it will be able to to function and worship in the realm of the supernatural. Now, how so? Well, we're not real sure, but we know we will be like Christ. And in light of this, if I can give you a little speculation, I find it really fascinating to think about the human imagination. I mean, we are made in the image of God, and among other things, we of what it means to be made in the image of God. We were created to, um, Genesis says, to rule and to subdue, to have dominion over God's creation as his vice regents. But because the image of God and man has been marred and distorted by sin, we live under the curse. We know according to Genesis 3 and verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. All right, so that is our reality. That's part of why we all groan inwardly, as we read in Romans 8. But unlike any other creature, think about this, 
as image bearers of our God, we fantasize about being superhuman, don't we? Our imagination can run wild with what ifs. What if I could fly? What if I had superhuman strength? What if I could transport myself here and there? What if I was a genius and I knew all things? I mean, from, from Star Wars to Superman. These are the types of things that our imaginations tend to play with. And every now and then, we get a glimpse of the unfallen mind in like child prodigies or idiosavant, like Rain Man, remember? Uh, or some genius or whatever. We get a little glimpse of that. But we fantasize about being able to do all of these magnificent things. Animals don't read Marvel comics, you know? They, they don't think that way. Um, horses don't dream about being a flying unicorn. Um, you know, Fido doesn't fantasize about being Rex the Wonder Dog or whatever. But we as human beings, we think of all these things. And beloved, I'm convinced that our God-given ability to imagine is God's way of wetting our appetite for the supernatural existence that awaits us, for all of the wonders of our heavenly existence in our resurrected bodies. And, and aren't we all intrigued? We know that Paul was taken into glory in 2 Corinthians 12. It says that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. He presumably heard words and saw sights that were indescribable, that were incomprehensible. You read Isaiah trying to describe the throne room of God or Ezekiel trying to describe heaven or John and his... I mean, you, you can tell it, 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 this, is, this is beyond anything that we can identify with. It's like that song, I Can Only Imagine. But we do know according to Matthew 13, 34, that the righteous shall, I love this, shine forth in the kingdom of their father. Now, I don't know what all that includes, but there's going to be some shining going on. Luke 20 and verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die, even die anymore, but they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So there won't be marriage in heaven. Nancy and I have lamented over that, but we realize that if God could invent anything this magnificent, what he's got for us in heaven will be even better. But so we, we know that we're, we're not going to die anymore. It said we're going to be like angels Sons of God, sons of the resurrection. So whatever the nature of our resurrected body, beloved, suffice it to say that it will be perfect in every way. It will be suited for perfect joy and perfect worship. Plus, we know that we are going to reign with him, whatever that means. I, I think of the passage, the parable of the talents. Remember, the Lord says to each of the good servants in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one: Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, folks, we don't know how many other universes he has created, right? 
We don't know. Or what he might create to bring glory to himself. We, we, who knows the distant galaxies and what we would consider alien species over which we might rule? We just don't know. We tend to think of everything kind of in our own little bubble, don't we? But God is so much bigger than all of that. Now, again, what will it be like to be like Christ? Well, if we look at Scripture, if we examine Jesus' post-resurrection manifestations in his glorified body, we see how he was remarkably the same in appearance, yet he was radically different in ways that we cannot comprehend. You will recall the passages. He, he, he was able to suddenly appear and then suddenly disappear and then suddenly reappear at a great distance away. I don't know why, but beam me up Scotty somehow comes to mind. I mean, he could pass through walls. He passed through closed doors. Um, yet he could also eat food and drink liquid and, and speak and interact with those that he chose to reveal himself to. He was able to ascend into heaven at a speed that he controlled, that he determined. And he has promised to return physically in the same way. I love that passage in Acts 1, verse 11. They also said, men of Galilee, the angels said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, folks, that is awesome. I know I use that word. That's the appropriate use of that word, by the way. That is awesome. We're going to be able to do similar things. Back to the text, verse 44. It is sown a natural body as it raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The natural body refers to one that is suited for, for life on this earth, this natural world. But as we all know, this natural body it would be, it, it is greatly limited. It would be incapable of living and functioning in the new creation. This requires a spiritual body. Now, by the way, spiritual here does not refer to that which is immaterial or ethereal. It's not like we're going to be some disembodied spirit floating around. That's not what it's referring to. I mean, our resurrected body is going to be patterned after Christ's resurrected body. Remember, he was the first fruits of a material resurrection. He will transform our bodies, the bodies of believers, into conformity with the body of his glory. Philippians 3.21, and he declared in Luke 24.29 that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So it's not like we're going to be some disembodied ghost floating around. Instead, by spiritual body, what Paul is referring to is, is a body that is capable of living in the new creation that is perfectly submitted to the Holy Spirit that now dwells within us. You see, this is the ultimate fruition of our sanctification We have been perfected by the Spirit of God. We're finally conformed into the likeness of Christ. And so our resurrected body will no longer be subject to temptation and sin. It will no longer experience the limitations of mind and the limitations of body, but rather it will be able to instantly respond to every impulse of the new creation. To, to every thought of our glorious God and Savior. Without the slightest weakness, 
in aspiration or even inability. And Paul continues describing this dissimilarity of the resurrection body from the earthly. He says in verse 45, so also it is written, the first Adam, I mean, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a living or a life-giving spirit, a living soul, a suke in the original language. It means a living person, a living being, having a life form that, that, that is common with other animals and other beings that suited for this earth. And we know that when God created Adam and Eve, they were perfect. They were good in every way, as God declared in, in Genesis 1, um, verse 31. But they weren't glorified. And it would appear from Scripture that there was, you might say, a probation period that they were in. And perhaps they would have been glorified had they not sinned. We don't know. Like those believers who will be alive when Christ returns, you know, they are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So although immortal, Adam and Eve's physical body their bodies were, were, were created for a, a physical, earthly existence, not an immortal existence. And we have all inherited from them those the same essential attributes. And in contrast, we read that the last Adam, referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. He became a life-giving spirit through his work of redemption. Even as Adam was the prototype and, and the progenitor of, of our human race, the, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, is the prototype and the progenitor of the spiritual race of the redeemed, if I can put it that way. He's not only the source of all life, but through his imputed righteousness, he is the source of all spiritual life, eternal life. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 5, beginning in verse 19. For as though the one man's disobedience, I'm sorry, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And then in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul goes on to describe this divine development that occurs in his plan of redemption in verse 46. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, the seed has to come before the harvest. That's the point. The imperfect must precede the perfect. When we enter life, uh, we do so in the, the natural form until we undergo this transition into the spiritual So the natural body is the seed that first must be planted before the spiritual life can burst forth from the ground. Verse 47, he says, the first man from the earth, earthy. This speaks of man's origin. We know that he came from the earth. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then he contrasts that with Christ. He says, the second man is from heaven. You see, Adam had a body suited for earth, but Christ had a body suited from heaven from which he came. Verse 48, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. 
And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And again, Adam is, is, is the pattern for all of his descendants. He is the progenitor. In other words, he is the parent of the race that bears the stamp of his characteristics. And as we look at each other, we see that. But Christ is the progenitor of those who will bear his image as his glorified, redeemed will do. Those who are Christ are to have a body, Philippians 3.21, like his glorious body. And folks, when we look beyond the physical, we can see the depraved nature that we have inherited from Adam. It's more than just physical. It's the depraved nature. But in contrast, we will have not only a body like Christ that we can't even really begin to comprehend, but we will have a holy nature that we will derive from him as well. Well, in closing, just by way of application, folks, live in light of eternity. I don't know what else to say. I mean, this is what awaits us. John says that when we think of these things, it is a purifying hope. It should be something that animates your heart to praise and to service. It should cause you to want to present your bodies as a a living and a holy sacrifice that is acceptable to him. So I pray that you will do that and just celebrate all all that awaits the redeemed. My goodness, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's absolutely overwhelming. And if you don't know Christ... Today is the day for you to get serious about seeing the horror of your sin and asking God to save you by his grace. Because you know what? If you don't, you too will have a resurrected body, but it will not be one suited for heaven. It will be one outfitted for the eternal torments of hell. So come to Christ today if you don't know him. I plead with you. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed when we contemplate what it really means to be in Christ, especially as it relates to our resurrected bodies. We thank you for what you have promised us and the certainty of that hope. And I pray that each one of us will reflect upon these great truths in such a way as to truly animate our hearts to be living and holy sacrifices that live to the praise of your glory, that live in light of what awaits us. And Lord, again, if there be one that does not know you, I would just cry out to you on their behalf that you would bring such conviction to their heart that today would be the day that they cry out for the mercy that you will give so rich and so free. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.